to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington here at Mount Vernon, and I'm joined today by Alan Taylor. Alan, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Doug. Now, Alan Taylor has emerged in the last... 25, 15 years as one of the most important historians of his era. Am I right to say that, Alan? Uh, some people say so. Yeah, yes, that's <laughs> right. very good. My relatives say so. Humility is important at Mount Vernon because that's what George Washington taught us, and Alan is very dutiful in that regard. But it really is uh, a testament to a remarkable career of scholarship, of uh, questions and asking questions and inspiring questions. Um, and of course the work he's done, but also the training of graduate students. You've been training graduate students at, at UC Davis since when? Well, it was about 23 years, years ago I yeah. started at UC Davis, and before then I was training people at Boston University. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. some of my graduate students, like Frank Cogliano, was one of my students, uh, one mm -hmm. of my very first when I was at BU. And Frank and I have I been in this room talking Let's about see. his recent project yeah. on Washington and Jefferson's on the, mm -hmm. the founding fathers' grave and tomb. Yes. All the, of us. The, are, the founders are still very good to <laughs> us. <laughs> exactly right. Although you're awful to them occasionally, Alan. That's what we're going to talk about. Well, maybe you're maybe you're just to them. Maybe you're showing them a proper mirror over here. Um, but so so you did your PhD work where then? Brandeis University. And you worked with Marvin Myers. Okay. And uh, and. What would you describe that mentor relationship like? Strong, weak, powerful? I think it was pretty powerful, mm -hmm. uh, but it was distinctive in that he had a lot of time for graduate students in part because he wasn't successful as an undergraduate teacher, so he mm -hmm. had plenty of time. Huh. And he was a very close and very critical reader, yeah. so I learned a hell of a lot about thinking and about writing from working with him. Yeah, and do you, do you feel like you're transmitting that now? Do you think back to his guidance and do you do it in the same way or do you just say like well I'm going to do it in my own way well everybody does it in their own way but you pick and choose from the people who were your own mentors yeah. uh, in order to figure out what you think is going to work for you so I certainly borrowed a lot of things from Marvin Myers and I try to teach the same kind of rigor of thinking mm. which is what he tried to teach me what I really appreciate about the diversity of graduate students that I've seen that have come out of your shop, the Alan Taylor shop, is that uh, they do all sorts of different stuff, yeah. you know, and I think that that's a really, that's a testament to uh, your willingness to let them find their own path. I think that's very important. I had another graduate advisor yeah. who, uh, who was very uh, directive and very much wanted to dictate what mm. uh, each graduate student project would be, and that didn't work for me. Yeah. And I was determined I would never be like that. Yeah. So I always try to find out from the graduate student what their passion is because unless you're passionate, you're not going to put in the long hours and days necessary to do a dissertation. So yeah. I try to find out what they really care about, and then we try to craft a project 
that will be doable mm. and that will be of interest to the history profession given where that profession is right now. Yeah, well, I like that. So you're a, g a, a gentle chirper in the way you guide. That's very nice. Um, I, I also had experience with some uh, advisors who were more, uh, I'll say, kind of historically ideological in the sense that they had right. a particular point of view they wanted to get across and they wanted you to work in that sort of uh, vein, and I, I just try not to be uh, awful. But on the, other, on the other side is that, yeah, that willingness to let you explore and mm -hmm. say something really stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or something really that. new, you know? <laughs> Nobody's going to find anything worthwhile unless they care deeply enough to do the right. hard work to find it. Yeah, the hard work. Uh, Julie Seville, who was at the University of Chicago, uh, did one of my fields in comparative slavery and emancipation at Atlantic Ridge. She always describes research as despite my efforts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I like research. Yeah, well, you do. You're yeah. unique. So, uh, yeah. I, I, mean, know, I, I think a lot of people like research. Some people like it a lot better than they like writing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things I think that also distinguishes a lot of your students is um, strong questions that they bring to the approach and that mm -hmm. they formulate a mm -hmm. uh, project around questions rather mm -hmm. than theory. Well, I think that's, that's so. I, I say every student, you, you've got to have a hypothesis that you're testing mm -hmm. as you launch into it. And that's yeah. painful for many students yeah. because they'll say, but I don't know yet. Yeah. Well, you have to go out on a limb. Yeah. And then you proceed to do the research that may saw off that limb. But yeah. then you find a different limb to go on. But you're, you're con constantly testing between the evidence and the particular question you're exploring and your hypothetical answer to that question. Yeah. And if you do that, then your work will have a strong voice. And I think the students that have worked with me, they've all ended up with book projects that have that strong authorial voice. Well, you've, you've uh, uh, encouraged a lot of enthusiasm for you as an advisor. So that uh, something's working, that's for sure. Uh, so now you, you're at the University of Virginia, which has yeah. certainly emerged, you know, uh, probably as part of a testament to the work Peter Onik did there, but also when Steve Innes was there. Mm -hmm. I was an undergraduate um, at UVA, so I knew that history department mm -hmm. through that uh, angle of view in the early 90s. But um, uh, that has really emerged as one of the main training grounds for early American historians. Well, it's a great place to be. You've got the resources of Monticello that's right there. Uh, you have a great special collections library mm -hmm. at UVA. I have a wonderful younger colleague in Max Edelson. And then uh, Andrew O'Shaughnessy, although he's primarily at Monticello, is also in the department with us. And um, Montpelier is not very far away. So it's, yeah. a, it's a wonderful place to do early American history in particular. Yeah, I, I think that the, the ICGS, the Library of Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies, uh, how it's evolved over the last generation as a major uh, uh, provider of fellowships for graduate mm -hmm. students. Fellowships are something that they're probably few and far between when you were in graduate school, and they really become really important. Yeah, those opportunities have certainly increased. Yeah. yeah. I think of the American Antiquarian Society and the Library Central of Philadelphia. Or here. And well, This didn't exist as a provider of fellowships. That's right. Yeah, right. and now you see, we were just upstairs with all these UVA uh, graduate students doing mm -hmm. like the plague. We can get rid of them. <laughs> it's good to have them here, yes. for sure. And, uh, and uh, the fellowships are so important to... Uh, learn how to be a historian. Exactly. Your grad, you know, your graduate student cohort is crucial in that. Your advisor is crucial, but fellowships get you out into the universe, and you know, in this first sort of testing ground. 
Well, you've got to make connections with other people. I mean, graduate students, you might be holding a fellowship in the same place, other faculty members who you get to meet. Mm -hmm. It's just a crucial bridge for them to move beyond their graduate program as they're moving out into the profession to be able to come to a place mm -hmm. like Mount Vernon. All right, so let's get back to you, which I know you like to talk about. You're just a humble and uh, self-effacing grew up in Maine. <laughs> you know, people don't talk about themselves in Maine. Now you grew up in Maine and you wrote your first major work on the frontier in Maine. I did, yeah. People don't think of that as a frontier setting because it's down east after all. The frontier yeah. is assumed to always be to the west, but in New England at the end of the 18th century, the closest place people could move to in order to get their access on new farms carved out of the forest was Maine. Mm. Uh, the book is Liberty Men and Great Proprietors. Mm -hmm. um, you as you identify with the Liberty Men, I did, the Great uh, Proprietors. Yeah. Um, would you have liked to have been a Great Proprietor? Was it you were <laughs> angry? You were ex you were jealous of the Great Proprietors? Well, I don't think I was jealous. So I found out in doing the research <laughs> that some of my direct ancestors had worked for Great Proprietors, <laughs> so right. they were on the yeah. wrong side, mm. the right side. The work came out in what ninety one ish. Came out in nineteen ninety. 99. Okay, well, it was, you know, yeah. pretty good, that pretty good. good. I, it's been yeah. a while since I've read a graduate seminar, but uh, let's see if I can get it, get it back. I mean, what I remember about that book is um, it really helped me understand and connect, strangely enough, because it was really about Maine, but it was really about a lot of those um, problems of, of Western expansion that were happening up and down the East Coast, mm -hmm. uh, of which Maine was, you know, a symptom uh, in the story, I believe you, you make that direct link in the book. Yeah, right? I try to, to the regulator yeah. movements and mm -hmm. uh, the Paxton boys and some of these other mm -hmm. things that aren't weren't at that time, I think, easily connected. Because yours is a kind of a post-revolutionary story. It is, yeah, yeah. Is that plus things like the whiskey rebellion were post yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, so there's a whole spate of of rural troubles that begin in the 1740s and yeah. continue on until approximately 1810, yeah, yeah. and they're usually dealt with as discrete episodes. Yeah. And although I was looking primarily at Maine, I wanted to make sure I was doing as much comparison as I could yeah. to show that th this is a story that will cast light on this general phenomena of rural unrest. Yeah, and that was what I took away for sure in my own yeah. uh, thinking, and I, um, it's really a testament, but it speaks to the, one of the challenges, I think, that graduate students have, when they have a project, of course, they have mm -hmm. to be so monographic and specific on the time and place. They can't just say, I'm going to write a big book called American Revolution, which is mm -hmm. about right. the whole continent. You know, right. that you have to earn that. Uh, sure. But, uh, but, but, it, but it does strike me that you were able, in that book, to make a story about a small mm -hmm. corner of the world, a, a story that resonated, that all historians of the era needed to, to, needed to read. Well, I, I hope a lot of them read it. And you I won a prize. You won a big prize. Not for that book. I didn't, didn't you win like the first book prize no, each no, year? No, 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 no. All right. So, uh, mm -hmm. so Alan Taylor came out of that first book without a prize in anger, is what I hear. <laughs> Do I seem angry, Todd? You, not now, because no. you won all the prizes. Oh, I see. At so you think time, it was angry it back then? I'm back in the day, you were angry. You had a chip well, on your shoulder. That's well, what I'm trying to explain. Okay. Well, that's an interesting <laughs> theory. What was uh, William Cooperstown the next book, or was it? It was, yeah. One? So that was my second book. So that's uh, that's really a tour de force of a book. I mean, uh, an extraordinary. It, 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 you know, I think when you read it, 
there's very few times when I read a book and you're like, oh my god, that's so that's so amazing. I wish I would have written that book. That's certainly one I think of a lot of uh, graduate students looking at it like, wow, what a what an elegant idea. Where did you get the idea? You know, to kind of go from the Phantom Hall Cooper to mm -hmm. William Cooper and back and forth, and, mm -hmm. and at the same time expose all these things about the revolution and memory and uh, and the West and development. Fantastic. Well, I, I didn't think of that entire package up front, yeah. and the the start of it was I was teaching a course, just starting it, yeah. uh, on historical fiction, yeah. and I wanted to do novels that were set in the age of the American Revolution, broadly considered. Mm -hmm. And I was consulting different friends about what novels they, they thought were good novels, yeah. and um, my friend Bob Gross is somebody who was mm -hmm. one of my mentors and great influence on me. Said, "Well, you really need to read James Fenwell Cooper's The Pioneers." Mm. Well, I, I'd read the classics comic books back when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if classics comic books still exist. Yeah, well, they're out there somewhere. Okay, yeah. so I thought, "Oh, that'd be interesting." So I went and read it, and I was and I was fascinated by it. Mm. I mean, in part, it's a very melodramatic novel. But it's also got an engagement with issues, social issues of who properly owns this property that's taking shape yeah. through frontier expansion. And what are the environmental consequences mm. of that? Mm. And so I started doing background reading and found out that his own father, William Cooper, had been the founder of Cooperstown, New York, and the inspiration for a key character yeah. and the pioneers, the judge, the judge yeah. Marmaduke Temple, yeah. and that there were many uh, historical episodes that were just thinly veiled in this mm. story. And then I got access to William Cooper's papers, which at that time were still in private hands. Oh. Uh, and tell, tell a little about that story. How did that happen? Well, it was extraordinary in that yeah. previous historians had, had found out about these papers and had approached the family and been turned away. Mm. Uh, but I approached them, I think my timing was better in you that... You had that chip on your shoulder. Well, I think it was not having a chip on the shoulder <laughs> okay. that, that got me in the door. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were uh, saying, well, these previous historians were so aggressive in how they approached us. Hmm. Uh, that was one thing. And the second thing was that the, um, there was a fellow, Nicky Cooper, who was in the direct line of descent and was responsible for these papers. And he had been trying to write a biography of William Cooper wow. for about 25 years. Wow. And before then, his father had been trying for 25 years. So this is like the world's longest writer's yeah. block <laughs> through two generations. Yeah, it also and speaks to why they didn't want to relinquish the yeah, you know, because project they were going to do. He had felt his father had given him this responsibility, and he tried. Yeah. Um, and I read a couple of the chapters that he wrote, and you could see that he, he just didn't quite know where to take the story. Mm -hmm. uh, so I arrived at a point where he had finally given up yeah. on that. Yeah. And so he was, and it was clear that I had done some homework on it and knew what I was talking about. And he then warmed to the notion that he'd have somebody to talk to yeah. uh, if I would read these manuscripts. And so he opened it up to me. He opened what looked to be a closet door in his home, which was just outside Cooperstown. Mm. But it turned out to be a stairway going downstairs into a cellar. Mm. And once we got into the cellar, there was a bank vault, literal bank vault, <laughs> walk-in bank vault. Yeah. And he opened the door up, and there on to the left and to the right, and these 
acid-free boxes and folders wow. was all of the James Fenimore Cooper papers, all the William Cooper papers, which at that time were in his possession. Wow. And he cleared off an old 19th century desk and said, help yourself. Wow. So I had one of the most wonderful weeks of my life because <laughs> I do like research. And here I was in this dream come true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the sad thing is uh, I then had to leave. And that's not a, so much a sad thing as that three months later he died. Uh, fortunately, he was very forward-thinking, mm -hmm. and he willed that the James Fenimore Cooper papers would go to the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester. Perfect. Uh, and the William Cooper papers would go to a local college there, Haworth College. Okay, sure, yeah. So after about a year's hiatus while his estate was being probated, I then had full access once again right. and was able to complete this project. Yeah. So there was a lot of luck involved of getting my foot in the right door at the right time yeah. in order to do that project. Mm. Oh, that's extraordinary. So, so um, uh, it, it's a brilliant study. And what's the best uh, biography of Fenimore Cooper that's out there? Uh, well, Wayne Franklin has done. Okay. Um, it's uh, I believe it's going to be a two-volume project, and uh, my understanding at this point that just the first volume that's out. Yeah. But it's a very thorough biography. I would have been attracted to not not having your skill with the West. I would have been attracted to the spy, uh -huh. you know, the spy story. Right. That, that a lot of suckers would have gone that direction. Well, I think you could do a good, good book based <laughs> on the spy <laughs> too. You know, already done it. I mean, come on, it's no right. fun. To, you know, okay. let's do it. I'm going to try to do an Alan Taylor esque version with the spy. Mm -hmm. okay. well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Maybe not be Alan Taylor. It'd be Doug Bradburn version <laughs> of the right. spy you that's could right. do. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, that's so that's um, that's a great book. Yeah, William Cooper. Congratulations. That's the Pulitzer Prize Bancroft Prize winning book. So at that point, the chip came off the shoulder. <laughs> finally got the recognition. You know, somebody's going to pick up on this and think it's true, I Doug. Know, that's going to be in my Wikipedia biography that I had a chip on my shoulder. Uh, you say it enough, and it becomes the it fact. It becomes fact. It becomes the alternative fact. Uh, yeah, so now you uh, – so that book, I think, it, it captured a lot of um, – you know something about the direction your field was going, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't summarizing work in the same way. It was sort of leading a direction of interpretation. Emphasis on memory, I think, was mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. Still is important. Mm -hmm. um, but what 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 else? What do you think about that book? Cap what did that capture the zeitgeist that made it so uh, you know influential? Well, it's it is a narrative, and it's also reflecting on the construction of narratives and right. how uh, certainly James Fenimore Cooper did that in a very self-conscious way yeah. in constructing the pioneers. Uh, and I'm doing that very self-conscious way in writing the book, but I was struck by the degree to which every character was outlived, obscure politicians, mm. people like Jedediah Peck who challenged yeah. William Cooper for leadership in the county. Mm -hmm. uh, they were all telling stories, Absolutely. right? Stories about where you come from, where you think you're going, and that's what political parties do. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Federalists were telling a particular story about how they are bringing order. They are consolidating the revolution in a way that will bring it sustainability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they feel threatened uh, by these more democratic elements who were looking to Thomas Jefferson for leadership on the national scale and looking to somebody like Jedediah Peck in mm -hmm. Otsego County, New York. Uh, but the more democratic elements had a different story they were telling. It was about an incomplete revolution, mm -hmm. one that needed to 
maintain its momentum and open up new opportunities and provide uh, greater dignity for common people rather than asking deference from them. So two very different stories were on offer and ultimately in the election of 1800 in both the state of New York and then nationally, uh, it was the, the Democratic-Republican story that resonated with more people. Yeah. Um, so, so then you're, you, at some point in this, uh, you're, you transitioned to UC Davis. Was mm -hmm. this, were you at UC Davis when that book came out? Uh, I was, Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and this is what I imagine, and I don't know if I'm, since I'm making up stories about Alan Taylor's past, this is what I would imagine. This is what this story. Alan Taylor finds him, this Maine boy finds himself in California, and he has to teach the American Revolution. And all the people in his classroom don't know where Maine is, and they have no idea and don't care at all about Boston tea parties and things like that. And they want to hear about the missions, and they want to know about the places they're from. And right. so he starts reorienting his, his mind on this continental scale. Is that? What is that a, a made up version of well, what it, happened? Well, it, it's fifty percent true, <laughs> which okay. which is better than the average we get in politics <laughs> these days, exactly. right? So what? So what? Tell the real story. I mean, how do you? Start well, it, it is me? true that being in the West uh, yeah. and uh, did get me to think, yeah. and I do remember one time when I was lecturing in my survey course for the first half of American history, and I. Mm. I was deep into it. I was up at Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> yeah. And I had a young woman who's from California uh, asking in all of the innocence that a California undergraduate can have, mm. uh, raised her hand in the midst of my lecture. So I, I paused and I said yes. And she said, Professor Taylor, at this time, was anything going on in California? <laughs> Yeah. And uh, yeah. I said, no, nothing. <laughs> but it was a joke, of course. Right. Uh, right. But yeah. the students all earnestly writing down, nothing <laughs> is going on. But yeah. it made me think. Yeah. It made me think. Um, it is uh, colonial America, the revolution, the, the early republic, is that entirely an East Coast story, the way it was being told at that time, the way I was telling it at that time. Yeah. And it did make me think. Um, but... The, the, the part that's not entirely true is that I found I was teaching a course on the American West mm -hmm. and I was teaching a course on the American Revolution right. and I assumed the American West course would get larger numbers but in fact it was the Revolution course that got larger numbers mm. they may not know where Maine was they might not right. even have a clear idea of where Boston is but it was the exotic other for them so mm. in fact that mm. was the course that got bigger numbers interesting yeah the West got too local it, exactly yeah but at some point, you decided they were the same course, the American West yeah. and the American Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the book American Colonies is sort of a major restatement of American colonial history, a synthetic work to try to, to, try to tell uh, what? What are you trying to do with American Colonies? Well, I'm trying to say, what's it look like if we look at the whole continent? If yeah. we, we do not have this notion that it's all an English story on the East Coast, but it's Spanish colonization, French colonization, Dutch colonization, mm -hmm. even Russian colonization are somehow contributing to the eventual arrangement of North America. And if native peoples are at the center of all of these stories, then it becomes something not just of eastward-bound Englishmen, but mm -hmm. of northward-bound Spaniards and then native peoples who are everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and once I had that particular perception, mm. 
and it became uh, it became clear to me yes so when you look at the actual record the imperial officials on the margins of all of these colonial frontiers uh, were obsessed with native people and that that was the chief security uh, and economic challenge that faced them was how do we incorporate these native peoples into our empire right. and keep them from becoming the allies and the trading partners and the uh, religious converts of a rival. Uh, in that book, you play with the uh, whole idea of what is a colony and what is an empire and mm -hmm. how they evolve and, and mm -hmm. uh, certainly open up the narrative for a lot mm -hmm. of different voices mm -hmm. than the traditional 13 colonies of the British Empire mm -hmm. on the East Coast colonial America allowed. Right. Now, that's a debate that you didn't initiate. I mean, right. that's, I remember like the Forum in the Quarterly, the Hijayat one, I sure. think of it, right? Sure. That would have happened in the early it was, yeah. 93, 94, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Were you one of the writers in that? I or? was not, no. no. Well, at that point, you weren't award-winning, probably, and you're like, we don't I had my chip on my shoulder. We don't want to hear from that guy. Right. He's, he's in somebody's yeah. basement in yeah. uh, Cooperstown, doing right. God knows what, right. Right. Um, licking his wounds. But, um, but that debate, uh, this question of kind of expanding the story, there's the research field of early right. America, and then there's sort of the teaching challenge right. of, the survey course, U.S. to 1877. Right. So is this a prehistory of the United States? Is it sort of everybody within what becomes the United mm -hmm. States versus a research field, which at this time, you know, I don't know, I guess the Atlantic turn really hadn't even happened. It was, it more was happening at that time. It was happening, and yeah. but the Hijaya stuff was more about the West and, yes. you know, let's stop talking about the Hartford Covenant or the Connecticut, sure. uh, what, what was it, the Halfway Covenant. Halfway yeah, Covenant. Yeah, that was it, yeah. Right. If I have to talk about the Halfway Covenant right. in, a, in a survey course, then yeah. Right. But then the question, and it's the problem in a class beca became one of, um, at least is that a lot of that debate was framed in my head at least, is, you know, for every story about the Lakota that you put in or the Mandan, you're taking out something about, mm -hmm. you know, it's Georgia or some mm -hmm. colony. Mm -hmm. And that was a, that was a really hard for a lot of historians, sure. I think, particularly sure. who don't know the Native American history well and weren't comfortable with thinking how they could incorporate it. Right. Well, it was also a challenge for students at that time because yeah. they were coming out of fairly traditional yeah. high school courses right. that were focused on the coming of the United States. Yeah. And so they're familiar with George Washington or Benjamin Franklin, but then you start throwing in the Lakota, and yeah. it turns out the Lakota are not the same people as the Cherokee, and right. it all seems very confusing. Yeah. Now, since then, I think high school history has changed quite a bit yeah. and has followed similar lines, and so now it's now you have to explain who Benjamin Franklin was <laughs> to the yeah. students. Well, that that is well, that we'll get to that. I think yeah. I think that so your book American Colonies comes out in two thousand one. And so that really is, you know, it's, it's coming out at a really important time because certainly the, by that point, everybody's been declared an Atlanticist by some people. The continental turn, so-called, is sort of, you know, flexing its muscles. It's out there in the secondary work. But you're really delivering the first survey of colonial history that, that takes these, uh, these broader approaches yeah. serious. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And it's because, I mean, and this is, that's what I think is getting us to that point where Alan Taylor is emerging as the new voice in a new, in the new century to think about the field. Mm -hmm. And you were very humbly said, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, people have said that. Yeah. But that's well, the beginning, right? I think. Yeah. I mean, well, you were a Pulitzer Prize winner, of course, by that point. 
But yeah, you but, know, but you've not that many people in the grand scheme of things read William sure. Cooper's Town. Right. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of graduate students have read it, and yeah, my family school. read it. And yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> well, that's good. That's better. People than in Cooper's Town have read it, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not a great yeah. bestseller. Yeah. Many more people have read American Colony. Yeah. Well, and and it became a textbook. I mean, it's, it's, you well, think it's used it as a in textbook. a lot of courses now. Yeah. As a and and it, there's just a general readership for that book as well. So that brings us to this current book. Now, you mm -hmm. wrote many books in between because mm -hmm. that's apparently what you do. It's an extraordinary. It's a, it's a cry for help. <laughs> well, I, I hope that somebody helps you at some <laughs> point, Alan, because it's embarrassing for the rest of us to uh, wallow around with our one books and occasional articles here and there. Um, but, but, so, but, but at the time you wrote American Colonies, were you thinking right then, oh, i got to write a sequel. I mean, this is sort of. You know, wh how does it, we got to get to the revolution at some point. Well, yeah, I didn't set out to write American Colonies. Mm. It was, uh, I got a phone call out of the blue from Eric Foner, who was the general editor of the Penguins okay. History of the United States series. It was just getting yeah. launched, mm. and he asked me to do the colonial I volume. Okay. And, I, and I was surprised, because I said, well, well, you know, I really do revolution, early republic <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Liberty men and great proprietors. Yeah, he said, well, you could do that if you wanted to. Mm. And I said, well, let me think about it. Mm. And then I called him back the next day and decided I did want to do the colonial volume because mm. I thought that would be a greater challenge for me and I mm. would learn more from doing it. Mm. So I didn't have the notion at that time that I wanted to write a big synthetic book. No. Indeed, I didn't think I would. Had you done any Native American history at that point? I mean, uh, I hadn't published anything, okay. no. I mean, I, I used it in yeah. my teaching. Yeah. So, but it, it was it was great for me uh, to develop as a historian to do that book, and I found I was much more comfortable writing a synthetic big picture yeah. history than I thought I would be. Yeah, interesting. And so I did. Uh, in the short term, I knew I didn't want to do another book like that as my next project. I wanted to get back into the archives mm -hmm. and do a specialized book with local characters who I could develop, characters yeah. who yeah. would not be so familiar to readers. I wanted to do that. Yeah. And But then the more I thought about it, and I had more people come up to me and say, when are you going to do a sequel to American Colonies, right. that I put it more on my radar screen. Mm -hmm. and, then a, and then I did come back to it to do American Revolution. One of the things that made your work possible for the American Colonies certainly would have been this kind of uh, the golden age of, well, the age is not even a good age, the resurgence of Native American historiography yeah, yeah. post uh, Richard White. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's 89. I think of it as being much older than that, but I, I think it's 89. I think it published in 91. Oh, is it? Ground. Is it 91? Yeah. Middle Ground? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it, oh, it's even younger than that. I think of it yeah. as being kind of Well, there's like a lot of exciting work yeah. in Native American. I mean, yeah. Jim Merrill stuff and Merrill, Dan Richter yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Ramon Gutierrez. All coming out. Early it was all coming out. It was the exciting hot field, which was yeah. very different from when I went to graduate school, yeah. where yeah. there wasn't a whole lot going on. Right. It was highly specialized on particular Indian nations, mm -hmm. and uh, some uh, more work and more ambitious work was suddenly coming out. Well, and I think a growing awareness too that that is the story; it's not the side story. You yeah. Know, this that we what are we doing in rural America when the bulk of the people are Native American and the in, they're ba barely in the main. Stories, so yeah. uh, uh, remarkable transformation, really, uh, yeah. in the field. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people who didn't train in it kind of always felt like they couldn't write it. Yeah. You know, this sense of like, well, you, you get it's like learning another language. You had to be so specialized, you didn't feel like you were doing it right. But 
I think that's over now too. I think so. Yeah. I, I remember one of the reviews, an otherwise sympathetic review to American colonies, said, you know, why, why are there chapters here in the Great Plains? Because this is anthropology, not history. Mm. Right? Mm. And that was an older way of thinking, was it? Yeah. That, that doing Indians was uh, some sort of specialized right. thing that, you, that yeah. was done by anthropologists. Yeah, you got to be able to read the signs and the, you know, right. the random... Now, a book like American Colonies is reliant upon the specialized scholarship of lots of people, including anthropologists, mm -hmm. who I did read. Uh, but it's our job as historians to synthesize, and I believe it's our job to write about everybody, mm -hmm. not simply the readers, and not simply the members of what will become the dominant national group, no, but, but everybody who interacted with them in the historical process that we're all interested in. Well, you have a generous spirit. Now that you're at the top of the uh, the, the ship, though, you, you must be changing your mind about it. About what? About, about writing, writing about everybody? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's got to be about Alan now. Come on. Uh, is it? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, at some point, you must. You have to get to that stage, right? Come I on. hope not. All right. Okay. Well, let's get to the book already. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so you write the sequel to American Colonies, mm -hmm. and you call it American Revolution. What what are what is that? American Revolution sounds like a lot of things. Sounds like a typo, it? right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It rhymes with American colonies. You got the well, part S of it is, you right. know, it's it's branding that yeah. I, you know, I'm the author of American Colonies, and so this is saying to people, <laughs> yeah. here's the sequel. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. But it's also mm -hmm. I was I became persuaded that this wasn't just a, a branding exercise. Yeah, mm -hmm. that the American Revolution is so complicated. Mm -hmm. And it meant such radically different things to the many different people who got caught up in it. Mm -hmm. Some of whom were quite uh, determined and engaged with pushing this revolution forward. Others of whom were kicking and screaming and fighting it all the way. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people who are just in the middle confused by it all mm -hmm. and trying to get on with daily life. And then we've got native peoples and enslaved peoples and people from other empires. Yeah. Uh, so the tradition of writing about the revolution was to simplify things mm -hmm. and to focus it on the coming of the United States and to focus on the top leaders. Right. And some wonderful books have been done using that approach. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to do something different that widened the stage yeah. and widened the cast and said if we do it in that way, what does the story look like? Yeah. So I think that, that um, you're writing about an age and a place, and you're, mm -hmm. and you're trying to constrain a lot of stuff into mm -hmm. one synthetic story right. arc. Right. Um, you have a periodization from 1750 to 1804, mm -hmm. which seems very precise, but mm -hmm. uh, do you feel like it's as precise in the book as it is on the cover? Uh, well, you know, the, we always allow bleed ourselves through. in a synthetic book some bleed through, but it, it really does kind of begin in 1750. It begins on the eve of the Seven Years' War, and it ends yeah. with the Louisiana Purchase and the Haitian Independence. And the passage of the 12th Amendment, which of course. should have played up much more, I'm sure. I probably but should, yeah. We'll talk about that in a moment. Okay. But So, okay, so we got about a half century of time that you're, right. this story is going to yeah. be bound by. And then we've got, what, a continent? Uh, region? What is the geographical kind of boundaries? Well, I 
is it is about the entire continent. So mm -hmm. it's it's not just about the United States, but it's about um, British North America, which persists in what we now call Canada and yeah. the Maritime Provinces. Yeah. It's about the Spanish Empire, which was still present um, mm -hmm. when Probably. I stopped the story in, yeah. in Florida and Texas and the southwestern California. Uh, it's about native peoples whose mm -hmm. world has been um, greatly altered by mm -hmm. during this 50-year period. So it's about how everything has changed, that the revolution is truly revolutionary, not simply for creating the United States, and that's an enormous takeaway, mm -hmm. creation of the United States. It's the number one takeaway, yeah. I would say. I'm still recognizing that. Yeah. Uh, but it also creates an Anglophone majority in what would become Canada. It uh, re-energizes the Spanish Empire mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. It uh, transforms native relations deep in the heart of the continent. Right, yeah. It expands Spanish California. It is going to be the essential, I would say, preliminary to the coming of the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. And that French Revolution is essential to the revolution in Saint-Domingue that will create Haiti. Mm -hmm. And that revolution is going to be, along with the French Revolution, deeply sobering to Americans about what are the proper limits of the revolution, mm -hmm. who is properly prepared to wage the kind of revolution that white Americans will be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of those things then come into a story of the revolution if you broaden the stage in this way yeah. and you broaden the cast. Uh, so the, well I think the, the cast of characters, uh, maybe that's not the right terminology, but it's sort of like the subjects of your eye and mm -hmm. who are leading the pace of events or the, the, the way things are. Uh, that, that has such a um, important role to play in yeah. in the story you, you tell. I mean, because if you're going to call like Americans, and the, well, you make a big case of sort of I'm going to use patriots for this, and I'm going to use loyalists for that. Mm -hmm. You talk a little bit about the defining groups and how you mm -hmm. how you struggled and how you succeeded in in sort of def you know clarifying who was who and what was what. Right. Well, I think we distort the story with with. Um, with hindsight, yeah. if we call the people who were supporting the revolution the Americans, right, because the people fighting against it, a lot of them were Americans. Mm -hmm. They just happened to be loyalists. So, yeah. it, it's uh, so I tried to be very careful in writing about the war years mm -hmm. that those mm -hmm. who supported the revolution were the patriots, and those who opposed it were loyalists, and they were all Americans. And so, one of the big takeaways and re. Uh, emphases of the book is this notion of the war as a civil war. Yes. Um, a bloody, violent civil war. It's a bloody, violent civil war. That is, uh, that's something that most popular histories don't emphasize. That's true, though, though some popular histories are now latching a hold of that as well. Yeah. So I think there, there's, a, there's more of an openness to yeah. seeing. Uh, yeah seeing that dimension of the American Revolution is a very powerful and indeed for me it was a central dimension. Yeah. I, I mean I think that it's um, th it is nice to see more and more work recognizing the violence and the chaos and the, the contestation um, mm -hmm. because this old canard of well the Americans have a peaceful revolution and the French have a violent one and therefore mm -hmm. the American Revolution 
revolution isn't a revolution always right. seems like such an absurd yeah. framework. So. Well, you haven't spent a lot of time reading what people were writing, particularly uh, in um, in frank private correspondence during yeah. the right. depths of the war in, sure. in seventeen, you know, late seventeen seventy six, but also seventy nine, eighty, yeah. early eighty one. I was just reading a Thomas Jefferson document mm. where he's writing long after the revolution saying historians have not gotten the revolution right because they don't understand how much despair there was yeah. right in the, in the peak of it. And they don't understand the secret springs of motivation for mm -hmm. so many of the characters. It was, and John Adams understood this very well, that it was a very close run thing mm -hmm. and a lot of painful, difficult decisions had to be made. Yeah. Um, so one of the takeaways that a lot of the reviewers of the book have, have said is that Alan Taylor is telling a story about, a, a negative story about mm -hmm. the revolution. That, you know, mm -hmm. He's making the good old founders into these horrible white slave-owning racists mm -hmm. and everybody's victims and it's not a, yeah. uh, not a story to celebrate. What do you say to that? Uh, well, I would say that's not the point of the book. Mm -hmm. The point is to just show things the way they were mm -hmm. and to show human beings and all of their moral dimensions. Mm -hmm. At no point, nobody can find a sentence in that book that is where I am saying the Founding Fathers were racist and mm -hmm. that their achievements were uh, yeah. entirely negative. There isn't a single sentence to that effect. But what I do do is I report both the achievements and then Mm -hmm. the, some things, the, the limitations yeah. of this revolution yeah. and the fact that so many of the founders did own human beings. It's the system they lived yeah. in. Uh, I think I do a fair job of showing that this is a system that was extremely difficult to change mm. and that the cost of change, trying to change it would have been to blow up this union yeah. which had become so essential to them. So I, I think of it not as a denunciation of the founders, but as a great tragedy yeah. that linked with these enormous achievements, the creation of an independent country in North America committed to a republic, committed to a union on a practically continental scale. That's extraordinary. And I don't think I downplay how extraordinary that is. Yeah. But I want to show that the making of the sausage or the making of the legislation or the making of the Constitution is not always a pretty picture, yeah. right? And that they didn't achieve things that we might wishfully, looking backward, it would make our lives a lot easier if they'd gotten rid of slavery. Yeah. Well, they couldn't. Yeah. Some could. Some could imagine it. But they couldn't achieve it without sacrificing other goals that were more important to them, frankly, including the union of the states. Uh, it's interesting to me because I didn't, uh, when I read those reviews, um, and then I read the book, uh, I didn't uh, I didn't see at all what the reviews see. And because I actually think you are quite positive towards the achievement of the, the traditional framers in, the, in their aspirations. You know, the idea is that there's ideals created or institutionalized that are ideals that we still fight over today which I think most historians of the period agree with. That's the basic story. Right. I think you yeah. know most, most specialists of the revolution, particularly of yeah. our age cohort, you're, yeah. you're younger than I am, oh, of our yeah. age cohorts, I'll be dying soon. Uh, think, think of this as, yeah, this is what we found out. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but, but I will say that in reading a lot of the traditional synthetic histories of the revolution, there is 
a reflexive celebration of a revolution that informs almost every page. Yeah. And yeah. so now some reviewers who expect that to be normative in a book mm. about the revolution do not find that. They find that sometimes it's pretty celebratory, but yeah. a lot of times it's reporting things that are more complicated. And they're yeah. not used to that, so the assumption is it must be because I want to attack the financial. Yeah, if it's not there, then they're they're lacking this kind right. Of that it must be at the other extreme. This well, affirmative. Yeah, I like to think there's a middle. Yeah, that we're trying to find. <laughs> well, I think it's a, what you're telling is a tremendous story that's complicated. You yeah, know, and I think that you know, uh, it is interesting too because I think the story you tell is a story of an incredibly radical break with. Um, with the past. Now that leads to be the framework for a lot of arguments about the revolution. Was it radical or was it conservative? Mm -hmm. um, with, I guess, well, and I guess what would be different is, you know, all things that are radical aren't necessarily positive or progressive, but right. they can be radical. Right. I mean, where these aren't terms that you engage on in terms of the, mm -hmm. you know, the story. W where do they fit within your thinking of, of this? Well, when I w went to graduate school, the hot debate was between the so-called neo-Whigs or consensus historians on one side, people mm -hmm. like Bernard mm -hmm. Balin mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Edmund S. Morgan. And then on the other side, there were the so-called Wisconsin school or the yeah. neo-progressives, yeah. mm -hmm. and they were Merrill, Merrill Jensen students mm -hmm. or people Ronald like Gary Nash. <laughs> yeah, Gary. Uh, yeah. And it was very the polarized. Yeah. That you either thought the revolution was a top-down, consensual, conservative movement, or you thought it was bottom-up and radical. The class-based, right. yeah, uh, um, Young's and Schumann. And certainly I was much more attracted to the neo-progressive version, yeah. and probably I'm still more in that camp. But as I've gone forward, I've, I've learned to appreciate more the scholarship from the neo-Whig side, and particularly yeah. their attention to the seriousness of ideas, mm. And so I'm trying to draw from what I see as the best of both approaches, but on a yeah. particular issue, I have to make judgment calls. So there are times, such as in the coming of the revolution, in which uh, a lot of it is quite sympathetic to the neo-progressive take, or in the writing of the Constitution, I think this mm. might be a take that Merrill Jensen might like better. Mm. But in fact, Gordon Wood had had taken much of the same ground that I have taken on mm. the on the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, the creationist yeah. is big enough to. It's got a pretty radical section <laughs> yeah, in there, which exactly. is a bit yeah. different from the rest of the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. So that was one debate that uh, you you you're not engaged in. You really more. One of the great things about the book is the lack of jargon entirely. I mean, you don't use the word cultural broker ever. I think, which is nice. Maybe identities in there too. I'm sure. Hybridity's yeah. probably <laughs> snuck in there. <laughs> it's, in there. it's in the footnotes for sure. But right. I mean, I think well, that's the kind of point is you're trying to tell a story in which a lot of these uh, you know complicated concepts are sort of explained. In well, the, well, let in me the, let me say one thing. Yeah. Uh, what I see as being a sea change between when I was in graduate school yeah. and the revolution was being interpreted between the neo Whigs and the neo progressives, uh, and now is that race is much more front and mm. center, mm. how we mm -hmm. think about the history of the period. Yeah. And yeah, what's yeah. striking about that older debate is how little it had to say about the African-American yeah. experience or about Native people. That's right. They were just offstage. Yeah. Now, their historical experience has moved into center stage, and I think for very good reasons. 
And so and when so you it's very recently in the historiography. Uh, yeah. You look at, you know, Colin Calloway's The Native American and the American Evolution. That's like, yeah. you know, the synthetic little book is what, 97, 98? I mean, it's really not long ago. And right. In an effort to really incorporate these stories into the revolution as well. Right, and when, when, when you start to think seriously about yeah. the full population, which includes African Americans, then you have to tell a story that neither the old neo-progressive nor the old neo-Whig story allows for. Right. And somebody like Gary Nash has recognized that, and his yeah. work has, has evolved. Yeah. But I think it means that it can't simply be a story of class conflict, because right. that's not going to work. No. Right? No. Uh, class conflict at times is important to the story. Uh, but there are times where it's pretty clear that there's that elites are are have the initiative, mm -hmm. but they have an initiative in a way they want to keep it, and it means that they have to be attentive to what yeah. the so-called lower orders are seeking, yeah. and they also have to be attentive that they are living in a society where a fifth of the people are held in slavery. Yeah, it, well, and so this the emphasis on race, which is so uh, crucial in your work in, in this book. Uh, and others, you know, it's it, it's become, I mean, a lot of, I mean, the racial dynamic in this country today is different than it even was maybe eight years ago or mm -hmm. five years ago. I mean, mm -hmm. these these inflection points seem to um, to emerge over time, and and uh, I think your book is is going to be read in that context of, um, mm -hmm. well, I mean, so I got uh, maybe maybe I'm, this is not a question, it's sort of a, a ramble. Um, race in the revolution. What are the essential takeaways your book that it gets across? It's a republic for a white republic. It's a slavery's first challenge in the revolution, but there's a limit to it. That the enslaved themselves are important actors that need to be reckoned with. Um, mm -hmm. Well, it's all of the above. Mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, I do think that the revolution obliges the great majority of white Americans to think seriously about whether they can build a republic in a union of the states in which slavery is a pre-institution. They have to think about it. Mm. And they have to morally question it. And just about everybody in a leadership position yeah. morally questions slavery. Yeah. Uh, in a way that I don't see people in the 1750s doing. Yeah, it wasn't necessary right, it's to not prosecute the Seven Years' right, War. But it's yeah. necessary to wage the revolution. If you're saying yeah. this is for liberty, then you have to say, well, what about the yeah. enslaved? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the critics of the American Revolution, the British and the loyalist critics, are saying, you guys are hypocrites. And indeed, the, I'm not saying they were hypocrites, but I'm saying somebody like Thomas Jefferson or Patrick Henry or George Mason or George Washington yeah. all are, are confronting that they're uncomfortable with slavery. At the mm -hmm. same time, they're dependent upon slavery mm -hmm. given the property system they live in. Mm -hmm. How do they reconcile? It was painful for these guys. Mm -hmm. And it does... Yeah, it's a lot easier in some way for the, you know, the Southerners in the 1820s than it is... They'd rallied around the they've, cause. They've now got a justification. Slavery is a good thing, they out. decided. Yeah. Well, Washington didn't yeah. think it was a good thing. Jefferson right. didn't. They thought it was a horrible thing. Yeah. But they also did not, well, Washington figured out how to free himself from it, but yeah, only after, he when he, after he's yeah. dead, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, he does more than most people well, of in, his in class and time. Well, I just read Mount Vernon. It does bear saying that... Uh, 
he, he, you know, he's he's trying to figure it out, but he can't figure. He it can't out. figure it out. And certainly, as a public thing, he's not. You know, taking he's uncomfortable. Lead. He doesn't yeah. want to take a position because yeah. he knows he'll he'll offend yeah. a lot of people in the deep south if yeah. he puts himself out yeah. there as a as overtly anti-slavery. And yeah. Jefferson felt the same way. Yeah. Uh, and but it, and so this putting slavery on the agenda does lead to the northern states emancipating their slaves. First great emancipation in world history? Yes, Maybe. I think so. Yes. Maybe. Uh, and uh, this, this <laughs> ends up then polarizing yeah. the country, yeah. and it has consequences mm. for the politics of the nation in the 19th yeah. century. Um, so there's a, a, a New Yorker piece that just mm. came out yesterday, maybe, and it's going to be in the May uh, 15th version of the New Yorker, which references your book okay. in a piece. I can't remember the name of the author, but it's about why can't we just be Canadian? Uh -huh. Canada today has got health care, and they don't have this racial problem that we have in the United uh -huh. States, and it, goes, and it talks about the revolution. Yeah. Maybe the revolution wasn't a good thing after all. What would you? I know that's not what you intend with your work. No. You can't control how people read your work. And you can't. No. So, what would, you, what would? What do you think about this notion? Is this a silly uh, kind of a counterfactual? Well, I like Who, Canada, but the United States isn't Canada, and it never <laughs> will be Canada, yeah. for better or for worse. And it couldn't have been Canada. It couldn't have been Canada. The prehistory of the revolution. Was I mean, the American Revolution makes Canada. I mean, this. Uh, I haven't read the piece, but yeah. this author's <laughs> notion of Canada as a more socially progressive yeah. country, in some ways, is yeah. a consequence of they get to react against the United States, yeah. right? Yeah. And they get to do things. Now, in the later, in the nineteenth century, this meant that Canada was a more conservative. Yeah country than the United States was in many ways, yeah. a more intolerant in some ways, not embraced, but, but we love you, Canada. But of, uh, I'm talking about the 19th century. Don't worry, Canadian nobody listeners. listens to this in Canada. That's no, right. well, I love I love Canada. I spent a lot of time yeah. there. Some of my best friends are Canadians. Uh, but Canada's uh, progressiveness is really a post World War II phenomenon. Mm, I mean, the creation yeah. of their national health care. Yeah. Uh, the creation of a, a notion that their society is a mosaic of different groups. That, that's really yeah. post-World yeah. War II and especially post-1960. Yeah, and the peel, the peel to immigrant right. states was a, was a major but thing. And, and yeah. it's very important, as I understand it, in Canada, the, the, the thinking when you read the newspapers and they're reflecting on their own identity, yeah. it's always in count, yeah. contrapoint yeah. to the United States. Even though they are the United States' leading ally and, and trading <coughs> partner. This is an easy time to make fun of the United States, too. I, I, I mean, if you look around and look at, at the institutions of government. There are, there are some <laughs> uh, unusual <laughs> things that are being said or yeah. tweeted from our leadership now. That so so how, to what extent, to then, that. do you think of your work as a product of the times? I mean, we can always criticize the uh, mm -hmm. Herbert Osgoods and the Dalens even mm -hmm. now. With with you know with the clarity because we see the time and what, to what extent do you even worry about that or is it just uh, you, do you think about the between the period of two thousand one and two thousand seventeen when the United States has been involved in transformational revolutionary conflicts in the Middle East and wars and uh, racial politics and uh, mm -hmm. and a struggle for thinking about who we are as a country to what extent is the Alan Taylor history of the American Revolution too much a product of its time or, or just right? 
Well, of course, I think it's just run. <laughs> I, I take the Goldilocks <laughs> approach to things. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. I, I think historians are uh, cross-generational yeah. interpreters. Mm. Right? Mm. We aren't writing something that is timeless, as much as I would love to do that, we're writing for <coughs> readers who live in this moment, yeah. right? And we're trying to explain a very different set of people, mm. different culture, different society, different place in many ways, even though some of the place you know, Mount Vernon existed there, but Mount Vernon's a different place now. Very different, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, there weren't tour buses coming to George Washington's <coughs> no, house, right? No, just uninvited guests. Right, yeah. there were uninvited <laughs> guests. Uh, but it's, it's a radically different world, and yet we are indebted to them, to yeah, the political course. institutions, yeah. and for a lot of the discourse. So yeah. how do I explain the them in all of their differentness yeah. and their enduring relevance to readers today mm -hmm. who are themselves changing with each day? The readership of history <coughs> books today in 2017 is different mm. from 1964 when Bernard Balin was yes. writing about yes. the revolution, yes. right? Absolutely. Uh, so it makes me laugh when people say, well, this is just presentism, mm. right? Mm. As if it wasn't presentism when it was written in the 64 or when Ho mm. Osgood wrote. They were presentists Absolutely. too, right? Yeah. We have a better reading public, much larger. Right. <laughs> I, and I, I do not. think that yeah. the <coughs> approach that historians are taking now of trying to look at everybody reads a broader set of the documents yeah. than was the case for older styles of history. And the, the broader your evidentiary base, I think the better your history will end up being. Well, it's an interesting question. We think of the great consensus period of the 50s as kind of a you know, and there's all obviously there's many critiques of it from the beats and then you know the, of the notion of you know what was wrong with the 50s and mm -hmm. um, and that you could write these histories which excluded all these parts of you know the American public today, if you can include everybody, it actually could speak to a more healthy uh, sense of a national uh, uh, identity of diversity uh, than one that's based on consensus. If you know what I'm trying yeah, to get. Well, at. particularly I, you know, when I was teaching in California, I was yeah. teaching to a student population which many Hispanic, They're many Asians, Brahmins, yeah. uh, from many <coughs> different varieties mm. uh, or different nationalities of Asians. Uh, you, yeah. you can't just lump them all in one category, any more than Hispanics. They're very diverse. Yeah. And I think the American Revolution was an enduring story. Yeah. It is a very hard sell to a lot of young people if you mm -hmm. had just given the mm -hmm. traditional story of putting founders up on pedestals mm. and saying, we're just here to revere them. You'll right? certainly that, unless you're going to wrap them up in a rap music, because that is uh, you know, well, that a fairly shows. traditional story. Well, it's in some ways it's a traditional story, but there's a lot of conflict in that That's story, true. right? Yeah. This isn't a story of the Founding Fathers thinking the same That's about right. things. That's right. Yeah. Or the Founding Fathers sorting everything immigrants. out yeah. perfectly. But it's, yeah. try it's trying to connect the revolution to the immigrant experience. Yeah. And so many of our students are themselves immigrants or the mm. children of immigrants. Yeah. And they want to understand American institutions. 
but they want to understand how it's relevant to their own experience with yeah. questions of citizenship. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, what I liked in the, in the, the um, your answer to my question, going back a couple questions, was your emphasis on the readership. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you think about the readership when mm -hmm. you write? I don't know if we all do that. And maybe that's one of the keys to your success. Uh, some, you know, some of us just maybe we're just oblivious, but uh, you, you do, you do consciously think about who's reading this book. Yeah, I, and in some ways I'm, I'm kind of an accidental ac academic because really? I mean I didn't have any academics in my family, and um, yeah. I set out I wanted to write narrative history that was accessible. That's yeah. what I wanted to do. <coughs> really? Yeah. Right. And but. Uh, I needed something silly, that would pay the rent. Alan Taylor. <laughs> and I, I, it was odd at graduate school yeah. because yeah. the people there were, uh, they thought this was kind of silly and not really on board with what I should be doing in graduate school. Yeah. But I was trying to figure out how I could write a narrative history. That you were there just at the end of the quant enthusiasm? Well, right in, right, right, in the right in the middle of that. Yeah. So yeah. I was at Brandeis where the, King, yeah. well, it was the new social history. Yeah. And yeah, the yeah. social history had a powerful influence on me. But, but I, it was I, the death of narrative. But it was right. the death of narrative. <coughs> but then yeah. this is why Bob Gross's work was very helpful mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. He's trying yeah. to tell a story. Yeah. And yet when you look at his footnotes, you, there's a lot of quantitative yeah. analysis of, yeah, exactly. of, of <laughs> vital records yeah. and land ownership. Yeah. And so I've done a fair amount of that, but I've always tried to build it into a story mm -hmm. with characters and plot yeah. that would be accessible people. And as you point out, I try to avoid all specialized genres. The Minutemen in that world has stood the test of time, don't I you think? think? So, I mean, yeah. it's a really brilliant study. It's a great study. book. And gets at these, uh, in, a, in, a, in the middle class democracy, you know, Massachusetts, can show the social tensions that are leading up to the yeah. revolutionary conflict with such a fine grain yeah. that's believable and realistic and there's human beings at the other end of the story. Yeah. Yeah. It really is tremendous. Yeah, and that's been a great model for what I've tried to do. Yeah, well, that, uh, you, well uh, that's a good one to look to for sure. Mm -hmm. If anybody's out there, uh, a graduate student who doesn't know uh, Bob Gross's Minutemen in the World, you should get a copy immediately and take a look at it. Now, I'd say another book that, w that came out at the same time as My Liberty Men was Laurel Thatcher Allworth's yeah. uh, A Midwives yeah. Tale, yeah. Which, mm -hmm. which also was, was greatly yeah. expanded my horizons to think about how, how you're making a mistake if you leave out the female half of the population That's right. in yeah. writing this history. Well, we haven't talked about gender at all in, right. in this conversation, which is something I've been criticized on. So let's talk about it. Uh, mm -hmm. Where does how does it factor in in your story? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I know it's everywhere. In the right. sense that you you are inclusive in trying to get at a lot of different mm -hmm. types of women's experiences mm -hmm. up and down the social right. and racial uh, chains. Right. But in general, what what do you think is the takeaway? Well, maybe there isn't one. Maybe obviously there well, there's not one. But but it's it's <laughs> that if you want to talk about what what impact does the revolution have on American society. You can't just look at men for the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the revolution as a war could not have been waged effectively by the patriots without essential contributions from women. Mm -hmm. they, and so they became politicized in unprecedented ways mm -hmm. during the revolution. And then, as we see in every sort of war period, is this you know you have this story in in uh, women's history, I think, where every war you get women 
politicized. Yeah, well, okay. women have to be drawn in. A new or something. But the thing about yeah. the revolution is it's a specially long war. Yeah. And it's there a specially go. close run yeah. war. Mm-hmm. And so I, there's nothing like the uh, necessary engagement of women in the war effort, yeah. say, in the Seven Years' War. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying it didn't affect women and that women weren't important to that. They were. But they're not addressed by yeah. newspapers and political leaders yeah. in ways that are meant to mobilize them. And they aren't nearly as active in petitioning for mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. as they will become during the revolution. Yeah. And that has, because that is so new and important and pervasive, it has to be part of the story. Yeah. Every heart and mind is essential. In, well, a, in a civil war, uh, in a way that so uh, distant colonial affair. Yeah. 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 Well, the Seven Years' War affects certain pockets of places yeah. at certain moments in time for right. shorter windows, as you say, but the revolution over such a broad area of so many different well, populations. Well, the, the so. war is everywhere. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's every farm yeah. is involved in the war. It's not just that the uh, another army might sweep through there or some guerrilla band might. All of that's true, mm. but... You're, you don't know about your next-door neighbors. Are they on board with this revolution, or are they perhaps uh, yeah. working against it? So, so the battle lines are everywhere. And every and this is something John Adams said, is every farm mm. is involved in the revolution. And so what do you do with the more traditional question then about women's political rights in the revolutionary mm-hmm. arc of your story? Is it a, well, is it a glass half empty, a glass half full? I mean, where... Where does Alan Taylor in the uh, in the in the fervor debate? Well, it's. Did you get Judith Judith Sergeant Murray writing her yeah. piece, the Equality of the Sexes in 1790? Do you get that without the revolution? No, you don't. Yeah. Uh, Republican motherhood is generated. This concept of Republican yeah. motherhood is generated by the revolution. Yeah. Uh, but as historians have written, uh, yeah, it, is, it cuts two ways. On the one <coughs> hand, it says, uh, yeah. "What women." do has political consequence, uh, the raising of the yeah. right kind of yeah. boys Essential. as citizens, yeah. limits their and speech. the right kind of Republican daughters who will be the right kind of wives, that's important. It's, yeah. it's crucially important. Uh, on the other hand, it, it does say, well, then the place of women is in the home, yeah. and it, it's uh, one of the... So, but it it is then an, an awkward passage for women to say, okay, but what we do in the home is so important that we have to venture into the political sphere to get attention to the issues we deeply care about, like temperance. Because yeah. if we got yeah. a bunch of drunks coming home and yeah. abusing their wives, yeah. we're not going to be able to raise virtuous children. Mm-hmm. So it does provide an opening yeah. at the same time that opponents of that opening can say, well, you're saying your work as women at the in the home is all important, so why don't you stay in the home? Yeah. Well, then the one of the older questions, I guess, too, and maybe this is part of that formulation of the sort of Whig history versus the progressive history, is this question of the social revolution. Mm-hmm. Is the American revolutions mm-hmm. a social revolution? Is that a meaningful? For some people, yeah. I mean, it does, I think, widen economic opportunities and political rights for an enormous chunk of the population, well, but who were white men. So, but well, so even for say like Native Americans in what becomes upstate New York, mm-hmm. who lose traditional lands, and that land is then converted into, you know, chunks that are pieces of property that can be bought and sold and traded right. and rationalized, 
I mean, that's a that's a social revolution, but it's a negative effect on yeah. most people. Yeah, I mean, the it's a radical impact on their lives. The expanding opportunity yeah. for common white men comes primarily at the expense of native people, mm -hmm. because the the population of American citizens is doubling every twenty two years, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's overwhelmingly a rural population uh, of of farmers, planters who want their sons to be farmers and planters. Mm -hmm. And you're only going to sustain that system by getting more frontier land, which means it's going to come at Indian expense. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to tell the story that, yeah, there is expanding opportunity. It benefits many Americans. Yeah. It comes at a cost to other Americans. 1804, mm -hmm. the 12th Amendment, mm -hmm. the last amendment to the Constitution before the Civil War. I thought yeah. for sure that it's was in there. why you chose that date. Well, it's in there. <laughs> That's good. What, so what is a what is I, a I, what other book on the American <laughs> Revolution has anything on the Twelfth Amendment? Yeah, well, mine, for instance, ends in yes. eighteen oh four as it well. Does. I thought yeah. we shared the same end date. Yeah. I was like, Alan and I are, are right. uh, fellow travelers. We're the eighteen oh four eighteen oh four crowd. That's right. Yeah. Forget the War of eighteen twelve. That's a whole different, yeah. a whole different story, as it you is. pointed out. Right. But a lot of revolutionary long durée mm -hmm. stories end at the end of the War of eighteen twelve. They end. Some do, yeah. Yeah, the Revolutionary Era. Well, certainly like the early republics mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, th all right, so let's wrap this up because this is too enjoyable for yeah. me, and we've been going on for a long time for you, the listener, Terry, needs to finish your walk of the dog or your, your commute and mm -hmm. all that. But uh, what's a book that's come out since you've written this survey that you say, oh, darn it, I wish I would have had a chance to incorporate some of those findings into this story because it's so compelling and it fits so well. Uh, you've really put me on the spot sorry, now because uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave out somebody yeah, important well, if I, I do that. To, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, yeah. you know, Kathleen Duvall's book has come out. Oh, yes. uh, yeah, now, yeah, yeah, now yeah. I've read advanced chapters yeah, to that. And Kathleen and I have talked about that book in these very seats. So right. th those of you out there can go back yeah. and, and hear hear all about the Gulf Coast and the Revolution mm -hmm. and uh, and Bernard de Valdez. And uh, mm -hmm. he's actually um, taken a star turn in the last few years, which is crazy. He received his American citizenship finally, which I know he really was, it's been awarded to him. Longing for it. Yes, he's a <laughs> so he's, he's a rolling in his grave to be a citizen he's of a, a republic. He's an honorary citizen of the United States, and okay. he uh, and he is his portrait is in the Senate Office Building. So okay, this has been quite the thing. I mean, the okay. the, uh, the Spanish embassy has been involved in this. Uh -huh. Very exciting. So the Spanish role in the story of mm -hmm. the American Revolutionary era is uh, coming more into focus. I think there's some more work coming on the uh, diplomacy mm -hmm. side, mm -hmm. uh, the more European diplomacy related mm -hmm. to the revolution, which is still somewhat an undertold mm -hmm. uh, story. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's true. So your next work is on Jefferson's education. Uh, it is, yeah. So what what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, well, well, I start out with kind of a, a narrow question, which is how, why is it that Thomas Jefferson, a somebody who had attended the College of William and Mary in the yeah. late colonial period, yeah. decides that after the revolution he needs to create a new university for Virginia, which will be the University of Virginia, and that he is uh, eager and willing to destroy the College of William and Mary in the course of doing that. Right. What do we learn about the kinds of changes the revolution mm. has brought to Virginia by understanding this transition in Jefferson 
I, I think it's a great question. It's a fantastic question. And, and uh, um, so I grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. and I went to the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, and all these William and Mary graduates, you know, it's the 1950s, and a graduate of William and Mary, and mm-hmm. they would say, well, if you love William and Mary so much, why did you create the University mm-hmm. of Virginia? It's a right. very different. Well, the leaders of William and Mary at the time asked that very same question yeah. that they were trying to oppose. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, they come to symbolize different Virginias. Yeah. Uh, William and Mary is in tidewater, mm-hmm. which is the old Virginia, and it was the decaying, declining part of Virginia in terms of economy and population and political clout. The nabobs. Uh, well, the nabobs were had hit upon hard times, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of their plantations mm-hmm. had been taken over by broom grass and, mm-hmm. and pines. And mm-hmm. William and Mary is kind of stranded in this yeah. dying town of Williamsburg. Uh, and Jefferson's uh, from the Piedmont, and this is the m- the more vibrant part of Virginia uh, in terms of the economy and political clout. Mm. So partly it's a it's a transition of power, and this then reveals or or, or indicates the central thinking that education plays mm. in concepts of who should have yeah. political power, yeah. particularly in a republic. Yeah. What kind of education do, do we need? So we can train the right kind of leaders for a republic. And what kind of education do common people need? Because the assumption that Jefferson and everybody had was that it's going to be the wealthier class that's going to be educated to be the leaders. But they needed to be educated to a sense of responsibility to the broader public of a republic. Right? On the other hand, he also wants common people to be educated sufficiently that they can be suspicious of their leaders (laughs) and can hold them accountable. Right? So it becomes a question that has started with why do we have this transition to a new kind of university to mm. what kind of education does Jefferson yeah. and others of his generation of leadership and the next generation that are collaborators with him on creating UVA, what do they think education needs to be from the various earliest mm. form of education through a university? And regionalism would play a huge role in this story. Huge role. Particularly kind of the emergent sensibility in the South and the seeds. That's a huge part of it. And it's also because Virginia itself is very divided regionally. Mm -hmm. There's the Tidewater. There's the Piedmont. And then there's the points to the west. The Shenandoah Valley and what's now West Virginia and Mm -hmm. southwestern Virginia. Those people felt like they were being slighted. And they were. They were being being underrepresented. And political power, and they want something to sit at the table. So Virginia is facing a crisis throughout this period of whether Virginia is going to stay together, yeah. right? And one of the bonds that helps to hold them together is the emergence of a north-south polarity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Virginians, including Jefferson, in the creation of the University of Virginia, consistently refer to it as a national institution. Hmm. But they do not mean a national United States institution. They meant that Virginia was a nation. Mm. And they wanted to imagine the Union as essentially a conclave of nations, each of which would be fundamentally autonomous for all internal relations. Yeah, that's the Jeffersonian and model. Jefferson manages to get a remarkable amount of money out of the Virginia State Legislature, <laughs> which was not ordinarily in the business of handing out money. 
been diminishing ever since. And it's been diminishing since. <laughs> but he gets a remarkable amount. And the, yeah. and the talking point is we have to keep our young men in the game to receive an education mm-hmm. here. Because if they're going to Princeton, they're going to Harvard, they're going to Yale, they are going to come back with alien ideas. Yeah, yeah. yeah that really strong sense that you see in Jefferson's writings about the, 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 the need to keep the, the, the northern ideas. Right, up. right, yeah. right. It's really powerful because it's so different from you know, what you would be seeing from a person like George Washington in the 1790s even, mm-hmm. who's really sort of, you know, keeps trying to get into his inaugural, you know, address and his annual message to the states about a national university and a national observatory, yeah. and everybody really stops talking about that, you know. Well, it's, it's very, very interesting. That there's a very interesting letter, which I think Washington writes to Hamilton, mm. uh, which is mid-1790s, and he is bemoaning the fact that the the kind of nationalism generated by the war experience in Washington's view is faded. It's gone, yeah. yeah. How are you going to recreate it? And, yeah. and the sectional yeah. identities is surging, yeah. and he's troubled by it. Yeah. And he's hoping a national university will counteract yeah. it. Yeah, well, it's sort of like Jefferson's notion, is where these young men can come together and share commonalities across. But, but his notion of a is he, want, he wants different. Southern students yeah. and Virginians yeah. to go. He, he never yeah. thinks that Northerners are going to go yeah. to right. UVA. Right. Yeah. And it's very interesting the kind of waltz that Jefferson and Washington do during the 1790s yeah. over the money that Washington, the, the, these shares and canal companies right. yeah, that yeah, he's yeah. willing to invest yeah. as, as long as it's a truly national university that will be at the national capital. Right. And Jefferson's trying to get it into Virginia mm-hmm. and get his hands on these shares. Yeah. He doesn't. That's interesting. I don't he know doesn't that have story the well. Yeah. And then. Um, yeah. No, they have so they have very different points of view about the nation and, and yeah. the, the, the federal solution. And then Barlow uh, wants to uh, to set up a national university. And he tries to get Jefferson support, and he gets some kind of lip service to it. But Washington, yeah. uh, Jefferson doesn't really push it because he's. N- He's already thinking he wants a university in Virginia, mm. of Virginia, mm-hmm. more than he wants what Washington thought of as a national university. Yeah, I mean, Jefferson never has that nationalist bent. He's the governor of the state in the revolution. He does, mm-hmm. I guess, represent the nation in France. And yeah. You could theoretically say that could turn into something. But uh, but then he is president of the United States, so you'd, you'd think maybe there, too. But ultimately, he's a Virginian. He's a Virginian through and through. Yeah. And... and He's willing to be an American as long as Virginia is protected mm-hmm. from all exercises yeah. of federal power. Yeah, interesting. Well, this has been enjoyable, and we could go on uh, and on um, because this last subject is particularly interesting. I assume I'm going to assume again the way I do mm-hmm. about your trajectory in life that no longer do you have any chips on your shoulders. <laughs> But that the Jefferson book, you want to get that out sometime in 2019, in time for the 200th anniversary of uh, of Mr. Jefferson's university. I may miss it by a year or two, but but it is uh, is a a little carrot hanging out there in front of me that I want to make progress on it. Do you feel like you're required... Now that you're the Thomas Jefferson professor at, at UVA to write something on Jefferson? I, no, I don't feel that. I know a lot of people, I, people came up to me, fellow <laughs> peers, historians, and said, do you, do you really want that job? Because you're going to have to write a book about <laughs> Jefferson now. Because my predecessors had all written very good books on Jefferson. 
Um, and this is a book really in which Jefferson is, is probably the key character, but it's not a biography. It's mm -hmm. And it's going to try to embed him very much in his own time so that a lot of things that we assume are distinctive to Jefferson, I think will be revealed, are broadly shared ideas in Virginia. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Alan, for spending time with us. Uh, American Revolution, congratulations. It is the new grand statement on the age that every historian will have to come to grips with. It's uh, a rich book with lots of avenues for pleasure and, uh, you know, and I think opens a lot of questions that uh, future historians will pursue. So um, uh, that's, uh, you know, more than any historian can ask, I think, is to influence the questions that every historian should engage with. Yeah, that, that is the goal. So yeah, thank yeah. you very much. Congratulations. Doug. and. and more sales. Go get it, everybody. Right. Okay. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.